This is VOA News. I'm Marissa Melton. U.S. President Joe Biden has concluded a U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington. Uh, He posed with African leaders for a family photo to conclude the summit on Thursday. Earlier in the day, Biden announced he would support the African Union joining the G20 group of large economies as a permanent member. VOA's Diane Roberts has more. Mr. Biden said, quote, Africa belongs to the table in every room, every room for global challenges that are being discussed and in every institution, end quote. He said he was planning a visit, the first by a U.S. president since 2015, to sub-Saharan Africa. And he told African leadership administration officials from Vice President Kamala Harris to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will visit Africa too. Promise you'll send them back. Promise you'll send them back. I need them. They all want to go, but I'm worried they won't come home. The, uh, but I'm all, all kidding aside. Uh, we're all going to be seeing you and you're going to see a lot of us because we're deadly earnest and serious about this endeavor. Diane Roberts, VOA News, Washington. EU and U.S. envoys this week called on Kosovo and Serbia to remain calm amid an ongoing ethnic crisis in the north of Kosovo, where local Serbs have erected barricades to prevent police movement, part of tensions between authorities and Kosovo's Serb minority. Kosovo President Vyosa Osmani told Parliament, The north of Kosovo continues to be a challenge due to the territorial claims that Serbia has on Kosovo, which it expresses through the financing and support of its illegal criminal structures. Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic joined his government's meeting later on Thursday to discuss Kosovo's application to join the European Union. VOA News. North Korean state media said Friday that leader Kim Jong-un has presided over the successful test of a high-thrust solid propellant engine to be used in a new weapon. Pictures from the Korean Central News Agency showed Kim holding a cigarette and smiling as white smoke emerged from a horizontal test engine stand at a launch site in western North Korea. Analysts believe the test is likely related to North Korea's pursuit of a solid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. North Korea already possesses and has flight-tested multiple liquid-fueled ICBMs that can likely reach the United States. Americans sharply cut back on retail shopping as the holiday season began last month. AP correspondent Sagar Magani has more. The government says retail sales fell 0.6 percent from November to December after a sharp rise the previous month. This time they were down at stores selling everything from furniture and electronics to auto dealers. Consumer spending has been resilient since inflation first spiked a year and a half ago, but the capacity of many Americans to keep spending may be starting to wane, with prices and interest rates rising. Those who are spending are using their credit cards more. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York says total credit card debt jumped 15 percent in the third quarter, the biggest rise in two decades. Sagar Magani, Washington. German tennis legend Boris Becker has returned to Germany after serving an eight-month sentence in a British prison. AP correspondent Karen Chamas. Becker, who has lived in the UK since 2012, travelled immediately back to Germany after being released. The three-time Wimbledon champion had been sentenced to 30 months in prison in April for illicitly transferring large amounts of money and hiding assets after he was declared bankrupt. Becker's lawyer said the tennis star has served his sentence and is no longer subject to penal restrictions in Germany. 
Karen Chamas, London. A Nigerian Islamic Sharia court has sentenced a prominent Sufi Muslim cleric to death for blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad in a rare capital punishment ruling against an imam. The upper Sharia court passed the sentence on Sheikh Abdul-Jabbar Nasiru Kabara for his revisionist preaching, which the court said misinterpreted some religious text that portrayed the Prophet in a bad light. Blasphemy is a sensitive issue that can lead to a death sentence and a dozen predominantly Muslim states in northern Nigeria, but those death sentences are rarely carried out. A judge has handed down the longest prison term so far in the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Three three defendants uh, were uh, each sentenced with multiple years for providing material support for a terrorist act. Marissa Melton, BOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barton, Washington. Today is Friday, December 16th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. U.S. President Joe Biden reaffirms U.S. support for Africa's development. Africa belongs to the table in every room where global challenges are being discussed and in every institution where discussions are taking place. The African Union expresses gratitude to the Biden-Harris administration for organizing the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. We'll have a critical analysis of the three-day conference. Ghana says Burkina Faso used a mine to pay Russian mercenaries. Tunisians vote tomorrow Saturday for a new parliament. Very few people are participating. Uh, when you walk in the streets of Tunis, you barely see any signs that elections are taking place. And Somalia inches toward famine as nearly 8 million are affected by extreme drought. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. President Joe Biden has reaffirmed U.S. support for Africa's development, democracy, and its representation in international organizations. The president spoke yesterday, Thursday, on day three of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. As I said yesterday, the United States is all in on Africa and all in with Africa. African voices, African leadership, African innovation— All are critical to addressing the most pressing global challenges and to realizing the vision we all share, a world that is free, a world that is open, prosperous, and secure. Africa belongs to the table in every room, in every room where global challenges are being discussed and in every institution where discussions are taking place. That's why I announced in September at the United Nations General Assembly that the United States fully supports reforming the U.N. Security Council to include permanent representation for Africa. And today I'm also calling for the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member of the G20. The people of Africa are indispensable partners to delivering the progress that benefits everyone, not just in Africa and the United States, but the whole world. The COVID-19 pandemic followed by Russia's unjust and unprovoked war against its neighbor Ukraine, has roiled the global economy, erasing many of the development gains that we worked so hard together to achieve over the past two decades. But that doesn't change our shared goals, 
and our commitment to seeing them through. It only makes it more urgent for us to take decisive action and take it together. That's why over the next three years, working in close cooperation with the United States Congress, we plan to commit $55 billion in Africa to advance the priorities we share and to support the Agenda 2063. That number represents a comprehensive commitment from the United States to invest in Africa's people, Africa's infrastructure, Africa's agriculture, Africa's health system, Africa's security, and more. In our view, our new shared vision statement lays out a forward-looking foundation for the 21st century partnership between Africa and the United States. We want to work with you on these issues that matter most to our people's lives. And we're looking to increase our collaboration in every area, from rural communities to urban centers to cyberspace to outer space. In addition to our investments, we're also committed to helping African countries assess the financing you need, the financing you need to build sustainable and inclusive economies. President Biden also expressed his belief in democracy. He said the U.S. will invest $75 million to counter what he called democratic backsliding and also to strengthen transparent, accountable governance in Africa. As we engage with your countries, the United States will always lead with our values, support for democracy, respect for the rule of law, commitment to human rights, responsible government, all are part of our DNA. That doesn't mean we always get everything right. We surely don't. And the work of democracy is never finished or never guaranteed. It's about consistent and constant self-improvement. But that's why democracy is the best tool we have to address the wide range of challenges we all face. And that belief is shared by Africans and Americans alike. For South Africa's world-changing triumph over apartheid to Nigeria's not-too-young-to-run movement, empowering a new generation of changemakers, to the record voter turnout in Zambia, where young people demanded a better future, we see over and over again that our greatest power is our people. So one of the commitments I want to highlight today is the investment in countering democratic backsliding through our new African Democratic and Political Transition Initiative. Collaborating closely with African governments, regional institutions, and civil society, my administration will work with the United States Congress to invest $75 million to strengthen transparent, accountable governance facilities, facilitate voter registration, support constitutional reform, and more. That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking Thursday, the third and final day of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. Senegal's president and chairperson of the African Union, Maki Sall, has thanked the Biden-Harris administration for organizing the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit 
On the third and final day of the conference yesterday, Thursday, President Sal presented Africa's six priorities. They include peace and security and the fight against terrorism, climate change, infrastructure development, and a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. He spoke through an interpreter. Merci beaucoup, Thank you very much, Mr. President Joseph Biden, Mr. Secretary of State, dear hostess. I would like to commend the excellent organization of our summit. We appreciate your attachment to the African and American partnership and the considerable time and effort that your administration has committed to organizing this summit. And it's in this spirit that we have come to revitalize our common agenda with you. Certainly, times are uncertain and troubled. The challenges are more numerous and complex, but it's in hard times that friendship finds its greatest test of greatness, trust, and mutual respect. On this basis, Mr. President, Africa, through my voice, wishes to share with you six priorities and a message for our summit. The first priority, peace, security, and the fight against terrorism in Africa. We wish for the fight against terrorism to be a part, an integral part, of the world struggle against this blight to contribute to international security and peace. Uh, Mr. President, we expect a strong uh, commitment on this vital priority and support from the United States so that the UN Security Council places the fight against terrorism in Africa in the framework of the collective security mechanism that is in the UN Charter. The second priority, Mr. President, before the triple impact of climate change, health crisis, and a major war, Africa presents its advocacy for partial allotment of special drawing rights, and you raised a very important aspect, and we hope that the Congress can accompany you in this endeavor and the implementation in the G20 on debt relief after these different shocks. The third priority, Africa wishes a more sustained commitment on investment in development infrastructures. This fifth priority, Africa would like to work with the United States to win the war against hunger. Mr. President, I propose that I sum our summit launch a presidential initiative at your level on agriculture in Africa. Sixth priority, Africa asks for a more inclusive and just uh, world governance by accelerating the reform process of the UN Security Council and to give a seat to the Uni African Union in the UN. And thank you for this. We have gotten the response that we wanted from you. Thank you. President Maki Sall also called for the lifting of sanctions against Zimbabwe to give the people of Zimbabwe a fighting chance against underdevelopment.
As the U.S. African Leaders Summit wrapped up in Washington, D.C., many are wondering if the three-day meeting will be viewed as a success. Thomas Sheehy, a distinguished fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace Africa Center, thinks it will be, particularly with new trade agreements. Sheehy tells viewers Carol Van Dam there is a growing interest by the U.S. in strategic minerals that are very important to Africa's energy transition, noting that over the last few months, there's been major deals announced to assist mining companies in processing critical minerals. For example, a, a company recently got a $300 million grant from the Department of Energy to mine graphite in Mozambique and process it in Louisiana. So this is something new in U.S. policy, a, a growing, fairly intense interest in, in mining the critical minerals. But it's very important. I think the administration very much appreciates it needs to be done in a very responsible way. There's a lot of irresponsible mining in, in uh, Africa by China and other countries. And so it's very important that the mining be done in a way that that is uh, economically uh, uh, helpful, that doesn't uh, abide by labor and environmental rights. And so I'm I'm pretty confident that coming out of this summit, there's going to be more deals, more support for mining companies to, to help uh, the U.S. transition, but uh, again, do so in a responsible way. And when you say in a responsible way, as opposed to China, be more specific. What what is China doing? Sure. Well, uh, the mining sector, uh, there have been many, many uh, instances of abuses, reported abuses of child labor. Uh, that's well documented that in eastern Congo, for example, they're using children to mine cobalt. Uh, it's, it's very uh, unhealthy. They're obviously not. Uh, using the, the correct uh, equipment, the correct safety procedures. Children shouldn't be mining, period. Uh, so that that's a, an example. And, and you see that, unfortunately, in many parts of, of Africa. The other thing is just uh, transparency in the deals. Yeah, as you know, corruption is a big problem in many African countries. And how would it be structured so that you can try to weed that out before the, the deals even get going? Well, obviously, uh, U.S. Uh, mining operations operate under very stringent uh, regulations and, and laws in terms of overseas operations, the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So they have very high standards, and, and they have to be transparent and have to, and certainly can't engage in corruption uh, unless they they run the risk of uh, prosecution, and, and uh, those are very serious penalties. So I think part of the summit is the idea to entice more. U.S. companies to look at Africa and get involved in the mining sector. And I think with that, we'll, we'll bring the, high, the higher standards. The other thing I would add, uh, Carol, is that it's very important to get African civil society involved, and uh, they can be a real pressure point for transparency. The summit is viewed as the U.S. government's push or effort to reassert its influence in Africa as a counterweight to China's involvement. Is it looking like this summit was a pretty big success as far as that goes? I've been attending many events. I think people are very excited that uh, that it's back. As you know, it's been since 2014 since there's a summit. I think we're not going to go another eight years without a summit. I'm pretty confident there'll be a commitment to follow up. But with these summits, it's like everything, anything. Uh, you really need to make sure some of the promises and deals are followed through on. That was Thomas Sheehy, a distinguished fellow at the Africa Center of the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. (music) 
You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, December 16. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. President Nana Akufado says the military government in Burkina Faso has hired Russian mercenaries to help fight an insurgency in their country and is using a mine to pay them. Kent Messer reports from Accra. Islamist militants have made increasing inroads into Burkina Faso, triggering two coup d'etats this year, one in January and one in September, as the military tries to re-establish control of the country. Experts believe Burkina Faso's current leader, Army Captain Ibrahim Trori is using Russian mercenaries from the shadowy Wagner group to fight the jihadists. Speaking Wednesday in Washington as part of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, Ghanaian President Nana Akufuadu expressed concern about the suspected development. Today, Russian mercenaries are on our northern border. Burkina Faso has now entered into an arrangement uh, to go along with Mali in employing the Wagner forces there. I believe a mine in southern Burkina has been allocated to them as a form of payment for their services. And to have them operating on our northern border is particularly distressing for us in Ghana. An official involved in the border security of Burkina Faso, speaking on condition of anonymity, commented on Akufuado's remarks in a test message to VOA. He did not deny the presence of mercenaries, instead saying, Burkina does not need foreign fighters but equipment. We have men capable of fighting terrorism. Mukhtaru Mumuni Mukhtar, the executive director of West Africa Center for Counter Extremism, WACCE, said the recent withdrawal of European, mainly French peacekeeping troops from the Sahel, is a loss in the fight against jihadists. He said it will enable Russia's push to establish a strong foothold in Africa. Now that we're seeing the withdrawal of the French forces, which is followed by the other, you know, the other European partners. Of course, it's a big, big blow to the region and to all of us here along the coast of, you know, the Gulf of Guinea. The Russian mercenaries are in there, and they seem to be building some significant sense of uh, goodwill from the local population as against traditional European partners, and that should worry all of us. Mukhtar said focusing solely on using combat to fight terrorism in West Africa is not the best way to go, saying it failed in the Sahel regions. Combat measures are very important to hold territory and, you know, to, to stop this, this uh, extremists. But it's not enough to sustain any, you know, gains relating to combat, combating terrorism. You need to match it with significant, you know, non-combat measures, which is the people. And it's important that military measures uh, must be development-linked and must be linked to the realities of the problem. People don't just wake up to fight. Recently, West African leaders met in Accra to discuss terrorism and worsening security in the region. They resolved at the Accra initiative to establish an anti-jihadist force within a month to protect hostile countries such as Ghana. Kent Mensah for VOA News, Accra, Ghana. Tunisians vote tomorrow Saturday for a new parliament aimed to reflect President Kai Saeed's vision. Critics, however, called it another blow to the country's young democracy. Observers predict low turnout among a disaffected electorate squeezed by a deep economic crisis. For VOA, Lisa Bryant reports from Tunis. 
Saturday's vote in Tunisia aims to replace a parliament suspended, then dissolved this year by President Kais Saied. Tunisia's leader seized far-reaching powers last year in what his opponents call a coup. Syed says he aimed instead to save the nation from civil war. Almost all the country's political parties are boycotting these elections and calling on voters to do the same. Saida Ounisi is a former member of Tunisia's parliament. If you ask the majority of the political stakeholders today in Tunisia, they will tell you that it's a, it's a masquerade, you know, it's, it's a big uh, theoretical uh, kind of act. Uh, definitely um, made to legitimate whatever the president is doing at the moment. More than 1,000 candidates are running for 161 seats in the new assembly. Analysts say many have no political experience. Foreign journalists here were barred from interviewing them ahead of the vote. The new legislature will have far fewer powers than the last one and far fewer women. Previous gender parity rules have been ditched along with party lists. The parliament's diluted role and a much more powerful presidency are enshrined in Syed's new constitution, pushed through in a referendum in July with less than a third of eligible voters casting their ballots. This vote may not be much different. Many, like Amira, a school teaching assistant, are underwhelmed. I won't vote. I've never voted. I'm not interested in voting. Yusuf Sharif is director of the Columbia Global Center's Tunis office, a policy institute. These are very dull elections. Uh, very few people are being interested. Uh, very few people are participating. Uh, when you walk in the streets of Tunis, you barely see any signs that elections are taking place. Analysts say Tunisians are more worried about soaring prices, joblessness, and a shrinking economy, the same ingredients that fueled the country's 2011 revolution. Discontent with Syed is also growing. The powerful UGTT trade union has broken with the president. It calls these elections meaningless. But for now, after years of political gridlock under previous parliaments and presidents, Sayed's rivals are largely discredited. And many of the working class in Tunisia still back Sayed, like 73-year-old Ali Fetoui. He's a serious man. He's well-educated. He lives a clean life. Let's hope he'll be up for the job. Again, Yusuf Sharif. People are not very enthusiastic about him but he's much more popular than any other opposition leader. Many Tunisians are already disappointed in the outcome and in their country's democratic experiment that began a decade ago with so much hope. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Tunis. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson O'Malley in Yabucha, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports in Qatar as Morocco picks up the pieces after their World Cup semi-finals defeat. The Atlas Lions are gearing up for the prospect of potentially leaving Qatar on a high when they square up with Croatia in the third place playoff on Saturday. 
Beating two world-class teams in Argentina and France to reach the final proved to be a step too far for Croatia and Morocco, who handsomely defied pre-tournament odds to reach the semis. Morocco rewrote history along the way when coach Walid Regragri's fearless squad became the first African team to reach the last four of football's showpiece event. Moroccan's fans expressed sadness and some bit of pride over their inability to reach the World Cup finals. Yeah, of course, we are proud and we are sad at the same time. We are proud because it's the first time in Arabic Arab uh, country uh, play in the semi-final, but we are sad because we won't go to the final. This is the football. Sometimes you win, you win sometimes you lose, same like that. But uh, I'm happy because the first time going to the this this place. And before we we can't go to this one. Now we have good team. We have good. Uh, Coach and good player. I hope uh, good luck for everyone. Oh, incredibly proud. You know, I, I think getting out the group stage was an achievement for us. But then to go through and beat some marquee teams and get to the semi-final and actually see the tournament out with a third-fourth playoff, couldn't be prouder. Absolutely brilliant. Ugandan's national football team, the Cranes, have pulled out of the African Nations Cup tournament due to a lack of funds. The tournament is due to be held in Algeria next month, but the Ugandan team will not be participating because of the government's failure to provide the promised funding, according to Moses Magogo, president of the Federation of Uganda Football Association. In basketball news, the NBA has announced that the third season of the Basketball African League, also known as the BAL, will commence on March 11th and will once again feature the top 12 club teams from 12 African countries playing a total of 38 games in Dakar, Senegal, Cairo, Egypt and Kigali, Rwanda over three months in 2023. BAL, which had its inaugural season in 2019, has so far played two seasons. The response has been tremendous, according to BAL Vice President and Head of Strategy and Operations John Manuel Plange back in May. MBA Africa is operating a fourth office on the continent, this time in Cairo, Egypt, further underlining the MBA's presence and interest in expanding basketball in Africa. Staying with basketball news, the FIBA Africa Women's Championship is off to an action-packed quarterfinal stage. Rwanda representatives, APR Women Basketball Club, are among eight teams that have qualified to the next stages and will be hoping to make the most of it as action got underway on Thursday in Maputo, Mozambique. And that's it for Friday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a very good weekend. And that's it for this Friday, December 16th edition of Daybreak Africa. I am James Barton in Washington, wishing that you will have a great weekend. We'll see you again. On